The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. I'm very pleased today to welcome attorney, private investigator, and background screening expert, Lester Rosen, back to the show. Good morning, Les. Good morning, Francine. Pleasure to be here, and I love your theme music. (laughs) I'm so happy you could join us this morning. Um, This is going to be an interesting topic because I think for employers, it may be a little scary. Um, if they haven't heard this before. So Les, Les is the author of a comprehensive guide to employee background checks called the Safe Hiring Manual, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But Les is here, uh, as I just mentioned, to discuss the trends in hiring that he has identified for 2014. So Les, you've worn so many hats over the years. <laughs> you started out as a prosecutor, correct? Oh, well, actually, before that, I started off as a, a private attorney uh, specializing in civil litigation and employment law, and then I was a prosecutor, and then I spent a number of years as a criminal defense lawyer. So yes. I've, 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 I've seen it on both sides. <laughs> so you've gone through the whole trail. Then you I became have. interested in employment screening. How did that happen? I actually had a, an investigator that I worked with quite closely for a number of years on a number of my cases when I was in my criminal defense days who uh, did uh, private uh, investigations for employers as a uh, one of his uh, lines of, of uh, business, and he um, did background checks for employers, and I was fascinated by the idea. As a prosecutor and a criminal defense attorney, you just see so many times where people were victimized in situations where you're wondering, why didn't that person watch out for themselves and exercise just a little more care and caution uh, in, in terms of who they had into their house, who they associated with, who they employed? Uh, sometimes a simple background check would have saved lives, would have saved a lot of misery, would have saved children from sexual abuse. And uh, uh, I got to talking with my investigator and discovered there's a whole world out there of doing background checks. And when I decided that uh, I've, I've tried enough cases and talked to enough juries and seen enough <laughs> judges, I uh, poked around for something else to do, and that seemed like something that was very interesting. And how long ago was that? I actually started employment screening resources in 1997. Um, I, I was still practicing law a little bit. I was finishing up some uh, some jury trials, and I worked on a death penalty case, uh, and really got involved full time in 19, I think 1998, 1999, approximately. And it's been I've been fully involved ever since. And now you're the CEO. 
I'm the CEO of Employment Screening Resources. That's right. Yeah. We are an accredited background firm. That means we are accredited by the National Association of Professional Background Screeners. That is the industry trade group uh, for consumer reporting agencies, and that's a, the legal term under the Fair Credit Reporting Act for a background checking firm. And the NEPBS uh, was started in 2002. I was actually the chair of the committee that founded it. it was the first uh, co-chair. And APBS introduced an accreditation program about three or four years ago, which is a program in order to help background firms aspire to best practices and to earn the accreditation seal, which is a very intense process of six best practice areas culminating in an on-site audit by an independent auditor. And it's a process that literally takes months and months to do uh, in order to become fully, uh, in order to document uh, that you're in full compliance. So it's quite an exhaustive program. I think less than 2% of background firms so far have gone through that, and we're actually hoping more will. So that's a, uh, it's, been, it's been quite an interesting uh, uh, journey in the, in the background screening world. So for employers, they should note that if they're hiring a background screening company, they should look for that certification. Absolutely, that, that's one sure sign. And, and, and part of the problem with background checks is that it, it, it's fairly unregulated in the sense that PIs are regulated. So in, in most states, California, for example, there's a license that you need to take, uh, that you need to have, there's a testing process, there's an experience process, there's a, um, there, there's a governmental agency that oversees it. In the background screening world, it's a little bit of the Wild West deal. Now, mm-hmm. technically, the Federal Trade Commission supervises the new Consumer Products Financial Board, has some jurisdiction over it. Uh, background screening is really regulated, however, uh, unfortunately, by litigation. Uh, background firms, uh, the biggest regulator is the fear of lawsuits. Uh, because apart from accreditation, there is no industry standard. There is no way for an employer to to, to figure out who knows what they're doing. Uh, because mm-hmm. background screening, and this is something that might be of interest to the listeners, goes above and beyond investigation. Background screening is a is a particular subset because it occurs at at the intersection of screening and investigation and a number of legal concerns because it involves hiring. So it's an it's an mm-hmm. area that's highly regulated by litigation, uh, legislation, and regulation. Um, and so it's become a very much a legal compliance exercise. So. The, going back to your question, accreditation helps an employer decide, um, it gives an employer a standard by which to judge a background firm, and employers might be well advised to look to see whether a firm is accredited or because the program is still a little new, in all fairness, whether a background firm is undergoing accreditation or uh, can, can at least um, uh, affirm that they, are, that they operate consistent with accreditation. But accreditation uh, is really the, uh, the gold standard. For a, for a background screening firm. Interesting. And does the company pay for, to have that done, the screening company? Yes. Uh, the company pays, number one, is it's quite an exhaustive process. Uh, just the, uh, the data and, uh, privacy protection uh, aspect, which is standard one, is exhaustive. Uh, and there are six standards altogether. And so the company has to not only pay in the sense that you need whatever experts you need and, and the time and, and the energy uh, to manage the project in order to show compliance, uh, mm-hmm. But you also need, the, there's also a cost uh, uh, payable to any PBS to cover the auditor and so forth, right? So 
so any firm that has the accreditation seal has, has, has made a significant commitment to become an expert in the background checks in terms of all their processes, their procedures, their compliance, uh, and everything they do. So it's, it's a, really is a gold standard. And back to what you were saying about crossing the lines between screening, investigation, and litigation, um, there are many people, uh, and probably most private investigators, believe that in employment screening companies should be uh, licensed as private investigators. Yeah, that's a really interesting topic. Uh, our, our firm is licensed because we do believe that uh, that is not only a best practice, but our interpretation of California law is that uh, that's probably required. Uh, reasonable minds might disagree. Um, certainly, um, there are, are, are folks who take the position that a uh, background firm should be licensed in their home state because otherwise there's very little oversight. The Federal Trade Commission will occasionally go after a large firm, but basically other than law, Lawsuits, there's very little regulation, um, and so there's very strong arguments that a background screening firm uh, should be licensed. It should be noted that there's, however, a fundamental difference between screening and investigation. Uh, in screening, when we do background screening, as the name implies, we are number one. We're doing it with the full consent and authorization of the applicant, so we're not playing fine Waldo. It's not true investigation. <laughs> yeah, it was not true investigation in the sense they were trying to find something that's hidden, or uh-huh. the, the applicant uh, signs a piece of paper, they, they give us their social security number, their date of birth, their name, where they worked, where they went to right. school, because they want the job, um, or in the case of tenant screen, they want the apartment, or in case of a loan, they want the loan. So, But for employment, they, they tell you everything. And so what we're doing is, number one, verification, verifying if the person worked where they said they worked and went to the, had a degree they said they had. I mean, these are these processes are pretty complicated, but that's the, the uh, what we do. And then we're looking for red flags, so criminal searches and places that are relevant to the applicant. So it's it's somewhat investigative, but really background screening is more, and it has become more of a technical uh, software process because background firms tend to do large numbers of people. Uh, in a way, it's a superficial search. It's not a, an in-depth investigation. It's not knocking on neighbors' doors. It's not trying to find some hidden nugget. Uh, it's a, almost, in a way, it's assembly line. Uh, we, we, there's a protocol where, in terms of how we look for criminal records, there's software that helps us do that. Now, at the margins, there's still some skill involved. So you come up with a hit or you come up with a, a discrepancy. I, I call background screen the exceptions business of a person uh, goes through the background screening process and they come up clean and everything is uh, verified and there's no criminal record as well, then you that person's done and they proceed in the hiring process. Uh, if there is a potential criminal record, then you get into an extremely complex set of rules about what you do with those criminal records. And that's where it gets a little harrowing. Or if there's an employer who says something negative about an applicant, the FCRA, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, has a number of rules about that. So the screening and investigation are, are they're, they're certainly first cousins, but there are some significant differences. And, and screening, as I said, is more of a, of a, of a, of an assembly line business, uh, where we take thousands and thousands of names a day and, and subject them through a, a, a well-defined process, uh, heavily dependent upon, um, software and technology and, and, um, uh, basically, do the, do the software any given because this all has to be done within two to three days. Any given time, mm-hmm. you get the information. You have to go to your information sources, bring it back together, manage it. So it's become a uh, uh, sort of a complex assembly line business, subject to, like I said, a lot of, of legalities. 
I think um, maybe where private investigators draw the line is uh, the analyzation of the data as well as if you if there is somebody that's contacted and interviewed regarding that applicant. Oh, a- absolutely. If it goes beyond um, just the, the standard uh, sort of cookie-cutter screening approach, which is getting court records or calling schools or calling past employers in a call center-type environment where it's just a matter of start date, end date, and job title, as, as they used to say on Dragnet, just the facts, ma'am, or, or verifying education, which increasingly is now done through uh, an organization called the National Student Clearinghouse. Um, the, yeah, that, that is classic screening. Anything that goes beyond a, 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 what's done in an office environment, background screening, I like to say, never leaves the office, really never leaves the computer or the phone. Uh, mm-hmm. Where it gets into investigation is anything above and beyond that. So if there's any problems in the workplace, any post-hire issues, if there's a very uh, particularly sensitive hire, uh, such as a CEO or a CFO, uh, where you really need to go in-depth. Uh, for example, our firm refuses, and we will not uh, do a background check on a babysitter. Uh, because a babysitter, it's such a high-risk situation. You're hiring someone there with your children alone in the house. A background check done by a traditional background checking company is pretty useless. All we can tell you is, is, you know, try and confirm they have some degree or they work for a couple people Mm -hmm. or they don't have a criminal record in the places we check. But I wouldn't want to leave my my kids in in someone's care with with that level of, of investigation. So there are certain areas where you absolutely positively need a private investigator to interview the person, do a, an in-depth interview, to analyze the person, to knock on doors, check with, do personal interviews. So when right. there's real high-risk situations, and, and you're not doing a mass hiring program, you're looking at a caregiver for a parent or a child, okay. absolutely, yeah. yeah, you need a private investigation, not, not yeah. a background firm. That's a really good point. This is a good time to take a break, Les. Um, Lester Rosen will be right back to discuss more trends in hiring after the break. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com
You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Uh, Les, thank you for again for being on the show. And before we get into the trends, I wanted to uh, just cover, because um, I mentioned early in the show, that you uh, authored the Safe Hiring Manual. And that could you just talk about that for a second? Because I think this is a great resource. Well, I, I appreciate that. The, uh, the Safe Hiring Manual originally came out in 2004. Uh, it, it seemed to me that there was a real absence of written material about background screening. Background screening is inordinately complicated, complex. Uh, each process has its own ins and outs. Um, something as simple as driving license checks, uh, you, you could write 30 pages on. So uh, basically, we came out with the book 2004, uh, Safe Hiring Manual, uh, the uh, first, to my knowledge, the first comprehensive book on the background screening process, the laws, uh, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, state laws, uh, each process involved in a number of related things such as background checks in view of workplace violence and drug testing, mm-hmm. uh, privacy, identity checks, and it was rewritten substantially in 2012 to reflect, among other things, the EEOC guidance that was issued in 2012. And the idea was to make it a um, uh, an encyclopedia of topics. And having said that, however, even at, at 700 plus pages, which is the current edition, it's still the tip of the iceberg uh, yeah. in, in terms of all the details we could have put in it. But my editor uh, didn't want a 2,000-page uh, book, so so there's still even even at 700 pages, there's there's still more I could have said about each topic. But it's a resource that people have found valuable, and at least it, it helps uh, put people in the right direction. So we well, appreciate it. It is. It's a tremendous resource, and it does. If nothing else, it tells you it tells you what the pitfalls are and what to exactly. look for. Exactly. Yeah, and then you have another um, publication, the Safe Hiring Audit. Exactly. We have developed, or actually I've developed, a 25-point audit for employers to take to try to measure their hiring processes and to judge how it would fare if they are sued. And, of course, one of the big problems employers face are, are lawsuits for negligent hiring. If an employer hires someone that they should or in the exercise of reasonably care uh, should have known or they did know or should have known that a person was dangerous, unfit, dishonest, and, and mm-hmm. was not a good fit for the job. And uh, the idea that safe hiring audit is to give employers a chance to do a self-evaluation as to whether or not they're engaged in best practices to try to optimize uh, the workforce. Right? We all know that, that the better quality people you have, the higher the quality of, of individuals working for you, the better your company's going to do. And, for and sure. for most companies, the cost of your employee, your cost of human capital, is the single largest item on your budget or, or the second largest item. So it's the biggest investment we make, but I, I find employers spend more time and energy worrying about which laptop to buy or which copier to buy. <laughs> than they, and and if, you buy a, if you get the wrong copy or the wrong laptop, you're not going to get sued out of business. But yeah. negligent yeah. hiring is one of the fastest-growing lawsuits in America. So it, you know, hopefully the audit uh, and some of the other materials we produce will help employers uh, take care of that. And both of these can be uh, obtained through Amazon.com or someplace like that? Uh, yep, they're, they're both in Amazon, and we also, at our website, is a uh, almost an encyclopedia of background screening information, employment screening information at ESRcheck.com, and so we make those resources available to the public. And ESRcheck is all one word. 
Uh, right, www.esrcheck.com, ESR for Employment Screening Resources, check.com. And it is absolutely a wealth of information. You put out newsletters and there's all kinds of things. So anybody's interested in employment screening or as an employer and they're, you're interested in, in uh, bettering your company, this is a great resource. So and let me just mention you're also an expert on all kinds of issues surrounding safe hiring and due diligence. And you, haven't you qualified to testify as an expert in some courts? No, I have. I, 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 I am an expert in a number of cases. I've qualified and testified in, so far, California, um, Arkansas, and Florida, uh, where the cases have actually gone to a jury. Um, and you know, as you know, most cases don't go that far, but that's uh, it, also pretty interesting as well. So you, I have given me a chance to see what, uh, you know, where, where employers have actually fallen short, and, and the exposure is horrendous. Uh, in, in these cases where someone is hurt or damaged or a child's molested or whatever horrible things occur, um, there, there's substantial exposure. And what amazes me that in most situations where I'm involved, uh, the legal, the compliance that was needed, either the due diligence or the legal compliance, was actually pretty minimal. I mean, it, it, it was not a, it was just something no one bothered to think about. And it could have been, the harm could have been easily prevented. So, that, yeah. That's a, yeah, the reason this is such a complex, specialized area. And we also, I should mention, blog on this area every day. And so our blog serves um, for many as, as the um, the way to keep up to date on any new law that's passed anywhere in the United States, new cases, new regulations, it'll, it'll appear in our blog. Well, and I printed out before the show this morning, I printed out a whole stack of, of negligent hiring cases that we might have a chance to talk about here. But in the meantime... Um, I know that uh, we wanted to mention why why this topic would be of interest to private investigators. Well, I work with private investigators a lot and talk to a lot of private investigators, and, and one of the things I'll, I'll often do just to demonstrate the importance of understanding the Fair Court Reporting Act and all the rules and laws surrounding background screening is I'll ask private investigators, uh, who here does background checks for employers for employment purposes? And I purposely say employment purposes, not other purposes, but employment purposes. And, you know, most people raise their hand. I said, okay, of the people that are licensed PIs that do employment, pre-employment investigations, how many of you are also consumer reporting agencies as defined by the FCRA? And most people put their hands down. And then I'll say, okay, I'm sorry, but that was a bit of a trick question. Because you see, if you do employment background checks with a PI license, even with a PI license, you are still a consumer reporting agency. You are still controlled by the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Can you explain that? Gritless, because that is very confusing. Why in the world the Credit Reporting Act would have anything to do with background screening? Well, it's sort of a misnomer. The Fair Credit Reporting Act originally was passed in the 1970s, and it was mainly revolving around issues involving the fair use of credit, how credit information is obtained, and so forth. And over the years, it has morphed. Uh, into a law that has also controlled uh, employment screening as well. Credit reports is one small tool that's in, in the arsenal of an investigator and employment screener. It's a tool that's increasingly disfavored, and, and the handwriting in the wall tells us that one of these days it might even be eliminated, or, or, yeah. or as in California, has been reduced along with nine other states. So the, the word fair credit is a misnomer because the word credit 
uh, is really a misnomer. It's really the Fair Consumer Reporting Agency Act, and in, 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 in order to understand what it does, but but it, yeah, despite the 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 fact it's misnamed. Uh, it, it really it does apply to all aspects of employment. It was substantially amended in 1996, effective 97, uh, amended uh, a couple times since. So if you are an investigator and if you do a background check, arguably you can do one background check and, and you wouldn't be covered because the law says if you regularly engage in the process. By the time uh-huh. you do your second employment background check, I think you, you have now regularly engaged and okay. you are a full-blown consumer reporting agency, a CRA. You operate under the same rules as a private investigator as any of the big three credit bureaus do when they do uh-huh. credit checks or any background firm. Uh, and you are a full-fledged background firm, and you are responsible for, uh, for for compliance with every aspect of the Fair Credit Reporting Act, along with the rules in all 50 states. So here we are. You and I are, are doing this interview in the uh, Independent Republic of California, where the the, the rules are, are different than the other 49 states. So California has its own universe. So you, you have not only the FCRA, in California you have the ICRA, the Investigative right. Consumer Reporting Agencies Act, plus a whole host of other laws that are only California-specific. Yeah. So there's the offshoring law. Uh, there's a law about credit reports uh, that, that limits how one can get those. Uh, there's a new law in California. A, one of our first trends, in fact, is ban the box. California has joined the ban the box club in terms of limiting criminal inquiries for public employees. Uh, California has also, as of January 1st this year, substantially enhanced those situations where a person with a criminal record can lawfully deny or lawfully uh, claim they have no criminal record if they went back to court and got it set aside. So it's it's not only is there a whole host of federal laws, there's California's its own universe. And then you add to that uh, the new EEOC rules that came out in 2012, which is uh, going to change the way that every American firm hires. So there's a lot of moving parts. And if you're a private investigator, if you are engaged in doing pre-employment screening, I would strongly recommend you join any PBS, that you contact Absolutely. a lawyer that specializes in pre-employment screening. Uh, the, the big rage now among lawyers who like to sue employers and background firms uh, is to take a look at the forms that are used. Now, there's no... The FCRA and California law doesn't dictate the, uh, the language as to what should be in the forms, but now we've seen two or three lawsuits based upon illegal forms. Uh, that don't comply. And so just the very forms that are used. And in, and in California, of course, there's a whole host of other special rules, uh, special language on the front page of the report, special rules, special language has to be in your forms. There's a Spanish language form that, that uh, that's involved if a person objects to a report. So there's just any number of ways to violate California law. And, and the big problem in California, by the way, uh, if uh, you do background checks in California, is that the ICR provides a fine of $10,000 per occurrence. It's a civil fine, not a mm-hmm. governmental fine, but mm-hmm. you can be sued. A lawyer could send you a letter saying, I want $10,000 per occurrence for every background check you did. Some lawyers think it's $10,000 per violation. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so the stakes are huge if you don't do it right, if you don't dot every I and cross every T. So they are it's, huge. It's, it's not an area you want to get into as, as, as a... Um, as a sideline, unless you are really committed to it, because you very easily can get one of these ten thousand dollar letters. 
It's amazing. And, you know, <clears throat> we're not talking to people just from California. <clears throat> so this, this California trend, unfortunately, as seems to always happen, seems to be spreading the country. Oh, ab- absolutely. It's spreading from California. We, we're seeing states that are passing rules about social media access, about credit report access. Uh, a number of states are revisiting the uh, fair use of criminal records in employment. There's a big concern about that. So not only has the EEOC um, uh, issued a guidance in 2012, but a number of states are now joining Ban the Box, uh, which is our number one trend for 2014. Um, such as Minnesota has now applied that to private employers. Target uh, department stores, which is uh, located headquartered in Minnesota, is applying that to um, uh, their their branches throughout the country. So throughout the United States, it's just very uh, important for investigators as well that that, that engage in any type of pre-employment screening. Uh, to be totally aware of the fact that you, that you need to really focus a lot of energy and attention to make sure you're doing it right and that you're in full compliance with your state law, the FCRA, and, and that you're aware of all the other regulations that are out there and all the other traps as well. Yeah, let's talk about this ban the box movement. Uh, would you explain what that is? Yeah, that is our number one trend. We're we're seeing it more and more across the country. It's a bandwagon that uh, has really taken off. And ban the box is has to do with this point in the employment process where an applicant uh, goes online or they go into the store, they fill out the application, and someplace on the application, someplace online, there's a question that says, uh, do you have a criminal record? It may be stated in different ways depending upon the state. Uh, and then there's a box that says, yes, I do, no, I don't. And then there's typically some language that says a criminal record will not automatically uh, disallow employment and maybe a box that says explain and so on and so forth. Uh, the language, the actual language is pretty state specific. And, and the box that's referred to as the box that says yes or no after the, what we refer to as the criminal question. And, and the idea behind ban the box is not that uh, you, uh, as an employer, you have to hire a criminal that you have no choice but to, that you can't do background checks. Um, the idea behind ban the box is one of timing. The question is, why ask about ban the box uh, at the front end of the, of the process? Uh, because that only serves as an early knockout punch uh, if someone has a criminal record. Uh, and that, so it's just, a, it's just a box where you check... Yes or no, whether you have a criminal Exactly, record. right, yeah. So the okay. whole idea behind, the, behind, behind this band the box movement is that we have a substantial number of people that have criminal records. Uh, uh, unless a person who has a criminal record and has now done the time, after they've committed the crime, they've done the time, they're now out, they're on probation, or it's all passed, uh, they, the idea is that it's very difficult for a person with a criminal record to re-enter society and get a J-O-B, a job, and become a tax-paying, law-abiding citizen if they have uh-huh. a criminal record, because as soon as an employer hears about that or sees it on the application, well, that application goes in the trash. HR calls that an early knockout punch. Uh, and there's all sorts of studies that say, look, we, unless we get all these people employed, we're going to end up with a permanent underclass of unemployed people. It's, it's going to tax our, our, our resources, and we're going to end up building more, more jails and prisons than schools or hospitals. So we want to get people past 
the uh, application process so they, they can at least be considered as uh, on their merits. Now, at the end of the day, they may not get hired. They may not pass a background check, right. but at least let's not deter them or chill them from applying. And that's the basic idea behind, behind Abandon the Box. Now, here in California... Um, in San Francisco, they've they've misnamed a ban the box. It's gone a bit further, and they actually uh, have put a, a prohibitions that perhaps have gone too far on what criminal records you can consider. But the basic idea behind ban the box, and this is something we're, we're going to, I think, is taking off nationally, and the EEOC has endorsed it, is let's let a person apply without the, the albatross around their neck of being a criminal and at least put them into the applicant pool so the employer can deal with them without knowing about their criminal record. And we mm-hmm. tell employers, you know, why not? It, it, banning, having a, a criminal question in your application so you can toss out anyone with a criminal record early doesn't do a lot for you because what happens is in the real world, an employer has a position They'll get 100 applicants, 500 applicants, 1,000 applicants, and you have to start weeding those out anyway through progressive screening. You're looking to see who has the knowledge, the skills, the ability, the education, and you throw away those people who don't have what you need. And chances are, if there's a person with a serious criminal record, they're not going to have what you need. This brings up And the worst that can happen is someone has a criminal record, but they're fit for the job, and they come in for the interview, and then you ask the interview about the criminal record, and it turns out, you know, we like you well enough to bring you in for the interview. You, you, you seem to have what we need, and, and perhaps at the margins, uh, some people with minor criminal records uh, can present well and have a fighting chance. So it's really so about having you, an even Can you ask field. them then hmm? during the interview, Les? Can you ask them during the interview? Yeah, and that's the record? whole point, right? That's what the EEOC tells us in their guidance is that wait till the interview or at or after the interview and then ask an appropriate question about past criminal records. And and then that's a little easier said than done. An appropriate question means you're not asking an open-ended question that, that will elicit information that's irrelevant to the job or is, or is old. But yes, but the idea, Chairman Berrien, the chairman of the EEOC, has made it absolutely clear that background checks are perfectly legal, perfectly proper. Um, uh, their employers can absolutely do the background checks. Their concern is, number one, to let everyone have a fair shot at uh, getting to the interview stage without yeah. being automatically eliminated because of the criminal record. And then number two, if you find a criminal record, then the EEOC uh, has some guidances. Really, these guidances have been around since 1987. These are not really new. Uh, the EEOC uh, is, is suggesting, and based upon Griggs and case law, uh, that you use the criminal records in a way that is job-related and, and there's a business necessity not, not to have just a knee-jerk reaction. Because the idea being is that if employers just automatically eliminate anyone with criminal records, that, that there's been a strong argument that statistically that would end up in, a, in, dis, in, in what's called disparate treatment among certain protected groups. Um, and so that's why there's a long history of using criminal records with a grain of salt to make sure that it's job-related. So that's kind of a long explanation to simply say uh, ban the box is here to stay, that, that employers are well advised to really remove the criminal question up front and let everyone, you know, let anyone uh, compete for the job. And, and then after you whittle it down based upon job-related considerations, yeah, at that point you can ask a, 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 narrow, a more narrow, relevant criminal question than do your background checks. And there's some limitations on how far you can go back on criminal records. Correct? Yeah, that absolutely, and and we call that the look back period, and and that gets kind of complicated. So under the FCRA, 
the Fair Credit Reporting Act under federal law, when it was amended in 1998, you could go back on, on a conviction as far as you want. There's still limitations on arrest. And a, a case that was merely an arrest and, and never resulted in a conviction is treated much differently. But, but for a conviction under federal law, you can go back as far as you want. Under state laws, a number of state laws limit how far back you can go. Uh, and the EEOC is concerned about this look-back period because if you go back too far, if you're, you know, if you go back, you know, ten years, twenty years, something, you know, depending on the crime, you know, eight years could be too far if it's a minor misdemeanor. Um, the EEOC is concerned that that you're really putting uh, an unfair emphasis on, on on an old criminal matter that's no longer relevant. But it's not only looking look back period. You also take a look at what's the nature of the crime, how serious was the crime, who was hurt, right. what are the elements of the crime, and the nature of the job. Is the person supervised? What's the environment of the job? What's the job description? What are the essential functions? And so you you put those three factors together. What's called a targeted screen to decide whether or not the criminal record is even relevant. Well, uh, Les, was there a, a was there a law change in the FCRA? Because I I had understood you could only go back ten years on a criminal record. Uh, according to federal law, no. The, the ten years, what you're referring to, that there, there's a ten year rule. The ten year rule, actually, uh, in banking, for example, uh, banks will go back ten years, and and where that arrives at in certain states, and I'll refer to California, although I know we're talking to people all over the country. There's a num- the number of states with seven year rules. Um, those seven year rules give way to federal requirements to go back ten years for a number of, of, of federally regulated industries. So banks, for example. So that's where the ten years comes back in. So yeah, the ten years is definitely a factor uh, if you're doing background checks for certain re- uh, industries that are regulated by federal rules and banks, and nuclear plants, and so forth. Um, so you have the FCRA that has no limitations. You have the feds telling you to go back 10 years for certain professions, and you have states, some states limited to seven years. So, But you know what that, that just demonstrates? <laughs> see that. This Sounds like crazy, a minefield. <laughs> it is. It's a crazy quilt patchwork. And what we get into all the time, because we're a national firm, and right. we, we have clients in every state, is whose law applies anyway. And so we'll have a conviction in one state that we can't report, a conviction in another state that by law we can't report. And, oh, and as a background firm, you don't want to over-report because that's going to get people upset. On oh. the other hand, if you under-report, then you leave your client exposed. So uh, it's just not uh, black and white. There's oftentimes when you get a criminal record, there's uh, decisions to be made. And, and even yeah. though in my previous career as an attorney, I was a, a certified criminal law specialist in California, uh, you know, more often than not, I find myself scratching my head trying to figure out, is this reportable or not? And then we bump it upstairs to our attorney, uh, and then we have to make those decisions as to what we can report to our clients. Oh, so it, it, it's pretty complex. So for trends, we've talked about, we've talked about the Ban the Box movement. We've talked about the EEOC guidance. We've talked about the criminal databases. Then we get into negligent hiring in those lawsuits. So what do you have to say about that? Well, what's interesting now is that negligent hiring is still a concern, and there's always, any time something untoward happens uh, in terms of it, there's a child molested, there's an embezzlement, there's um, someone who's harmed or, or hurt, uh, there's, an, there's an accident, any lawyer uh, who's representing a victim, the first thing they're going to do is try and see if there's an employer involved. 
And if there was an employer involved, it was the employer negligent anyway. So negligent hiring lawsuits uh, have been around for a long time, and those will, will, will keep coming up. Uh, the trend is that in addition to negligent hiring, what we're also saying are class action lawsuits against employers and background firms for illegal processes and alleging illegal processes in the way they do their background checks. So mm. there's one background firm, for example, that uh, settled a class action lawsuit for $18 million uh, on the basis that they sold databases, database results to employers uh, that had data that was not verified. There's a lot of rules surrounding what's good data and bad data, but basically the allegation is they sold instant data uh, that they knew or should have known was uh, from sources that were suspect and not accurate. And what uh, do you mean ex- instant data? What do you mean by that? Well, instant data is there's all those websites where you can go in and and put in a person's name and their social and their date of birth, and you'll get back a, quote, an instant national criminal search. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are very valuable investigative tools for background firms and investigators. The problem is for employers where accuracy is the issue, and the EEOC is concerned about accuracy as well, uh, those databases are, are really worthless in a number of states, such as California, New York, Texas, and a whole bunch of states, as a primary tool. So, in other words, a lot of people are under the misimpression that you go onto these various websites, you pay whatever it is, and you get your results right away, that you have access to a national criminal search. And if you believe that, I'm happy to sell you a bridge that I've owned for a number of years <laughs> that connects Brooklyn to Manhattan. Uh, yeah, I own that bridge just like those databases are a true national yeah. criminal search. They're not. I mean, California, they're next to worthless because the California courts don't release date of birth, and the way these databases work is they're, you need date of birth in order to um, you know, make sense of the data. Otherwise, you just get a you know, name matches only, so they, you can't do it that way. In Texas, they're, they're most of the count, number of counties in Texas just are, are behind and aren't computerized. Uh, in New York, the information only comes from the OCA, so there's very office of the clerk court administration, so there's very little data that's available, so there's easy huge hole. So these databases where people think they're getting uh, a criminal information uh, is, is a crazy quilt patchwork of, of some states, there's pretty good data, a number of states, the data is terrible. So, well, not only that, but you can't depend on commercial databases. You have to do go to the courthouse and do a hand search to get valid absolutely, information. Absolutely, absolutely. And in California, that's actually required by law. In the other forty-nine states, uh, that's a requirement if you don't want to get sued. Now, under, <laughs> under, under the <laughs> FDRA, there there is a provision to give notice, contemporary notice to a consumer. Uh, but there's a lot of litigation about that notice, and it's just a dangerous way to go. I mean, so it's allowed by the law, but there's you know a lot of that's going to attract attention from from uh, plaintiffs' lawyers. So these databases you need to take with a grain of salt. And I, and I said they're wonderful tools as secondary tools. So we, we background screeners and investigators certainly need those databases because it's another tool in the arsenal, but it's not a an accurate background report that can go to the employer. So there's been class actions about that, and people have paid large sums of money uh, because they use those databases and uh, um, the, the database information went to the employer instantly. So anything, any type of search that says instant uh, is not a search that employers should really depend upon unless they know a lot about it. So, so the class action lawsuits are, are, are just any number of processes and practices. Um, it's the retail theft databases is now the, the uh, subject of a class action lawsuit. 
alleging they're illegal under California law and the FCRA. All sorts of cases and, and class action cases where employers failed to give adverse action notice required by the FCRA. That's a notice that an applicant gets if they're not going to be hired because of a criminal record and or, or, or the forms weren't right. So, um, and there's really no good reason for these lawsuits. I mean, compliance, if you sit down and, and think about it or, or consult with an expert, is, is pretty easy uh, in the big scheme of things. But uh, but that's the trend, and we're seeing it over and over again. And there's uh, a lot of lawyers, a lot of very smart lawyers, who understand that the ins and outs of these laws that are, are constantly on the lookout uh, for these type of cases, because in their view, it's unfortunate and it's it's unnecessary. Uh, for a background firm or an employer not to follow the law. And, and keep in mind that background screeners and investigators that do background screening, as, as one court put it, we are traffickers in human reputations. Um, oh, my <laughs> gosh. An odd oh, my way God, that's it, horrible. Yeah, traffickers. And, and, and a person's reputation is really what they have in order to get a job. So if we get it wrong and, and a person is labeled as a criminal and they're not, um, is there's terrible consequences to be paid. Now, sure. overall, I mean, background screening is is extremely accurate given the millions of reports that are done every year. I mean, you know, it's, it's a four to five billion dollar industry. That, that that means there's a lot of background reports being done, and the error rate is infinitesimally small. Uh, but if there is an error, that it's devastating to the to the person who's the subject of the error. So that's what we need to be. You know, the message is that anyone involved in background screening, uh, you know, in any way at all. Uh, you need to be aware that there are people out there uh, looking at our industry very carefully, and if someone is the victim of an error, allegedly, um, a class action lawsuit can follow with with horrendous damages. Uh, you know, and Les, what, what about uh, the social network searches? Well, you know, that's a really interesting area. Uh, that's one of our uh, trends as well. Uh, we've been following that for a while, and the social media searches where you pop online and you look at a person's Facebook and Google and to the extent it's, you know, it's made public, uh, at one time people thought, well, this is going to be a, um, uh, an area where, uh, of interest for background screening firms, and it's really fizzled. Uh, yeah, the problem is that to find something on social media, you're looking for a very small needle in a very big haystack. Uh, applicants now have gotten the word that employers are doing this, uh, and so applicants uh, have now uh, undertaken efforts to password protect the stuff they don't, you know, if, if they have a photo of them getting drunk the night before at a college party, well, that's now behind password protection. We're not uh-huh. likely to get hold of that. So it's, it's a low return search these days. Uh, and there's just all sorts of legal problems with searching the, the, um, the Internet in terms of accuracy and authenticity, uh, looking at, uh, you know, looking at legal conduct. Uh, there's privacy issues. There's discrimination issues. If you look at the uh, Internet uh, too early in the hiring process, you may find out about a person's race, ethnicity, nationality, country of origin, marital status, if they have kids, they have health issues, none of which you're allowed to have uh, early in the process you know, and, and, and as a basis for an employment decision. So there's all sorts of problems with using social media. So what we're finding now is that even though social media is still very useful, in terms of recruiting or finding talent or sourcing new talent, that uh, people are, are using it less and less as a way to screen applicants. If you do do, do your social media, there's a number of, of best practices we developed. There's a white paper on our website. But essentially we say if you want to look at social media, do it after you made the job offer. 
So there's yeah. no suggestion that you're discriminating or invading privacy, that you're only looking for things that are job-related, and there's certain processes and protections we recommend you go through. But, uh, but And there's also states that are now pa- uh, uh, passing a, a word, laws that protect applicants from having to give their password. So that, that's been an interesting uh, aspect of it. Now, you mentioned, uh, earlier you mentioned credit reports. Could you address those a little bit? Well, yes, there's now 10 states, including California is one of the latest, that have limit credit reports. And the idea being is that there's, there's been this you and cry nationally among people that credit reports, particularly in a down economy where if you're unemployed and you run up debts or you have a sick child and you don't have medical care, uh, you'll, you'll have a higher debt, you may result in a lower credit score. Uh, certain groups historically have had lower credit scores. And so the idea being that it's unfair to use credit for employment. Now, of course, we all know, anyone who's looked at the subject understands that a credit score is never made available to an employer. Uh, a credit history may be available, but not the, the score, that, that three-digit number. So there's a little bit of hysteria about it, a little bit of a tempest in a teapot, but people have gotten concerned about it, resulting in a number of states passing laws that essentially say, look, if you're going to run a credit report, number one, it has to be rationally related to some, some form of business necessity. So you've got to figure out what that is. And number two, most states say you have to let the applicant know uh, why you want the credit report. And the idea really is to limit credit reports to those positions where it's truly useful and needed, such as people that are bookkeepers, um, uh, they have fiduciary obligations, they're officers of the corporation. The idea is not to use a credit report for kind of a rank-and-file, regular entry-level worker, because there's really no correlation between the credit report and um, uh, and job performance, and particularly for you sort of a regular worker. Now, on the other hand, you have someone who's handling money. You know, embezzlement you know, obviously is the con- uh-huh. is where you have motive, opportunity, and means. And a credit report could show a person's underwater financially. And so, if you're hiring someone to uh, handle millions of dollars, you, you might want to know if they have a personal financial problem. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but uh, for your regular entry-level workers, uh, you know, the handwriting is on the wall that uh, credit reports are disfavored. Uh, there's a lot of talk that the EEOC is going to enter the discussion with the guidance that uh, uh, really limits credit reports to situations where they're needed. I think more states are probably considering laws. So, uh, you know, credit reports, you know, the handwriting is on the wall that that is really a disfavored search that, that should be limited to very precise situations to where, where it's absolutely relevant. Yeah. I would, uh, just switching gears a minute, uh, I was just thinking that uh, probably many people do not know that uh, background checks are often sent offshore to be conducted. Yeah, that's an eye-opener, Francie, for a lot of people. Um, background screening, um, at some level, is a, a large data processing business. Uh, lots of people coming in, lots of moving parts. Uh, it's highly competitive, uh, particularly uh, you know, when you're talking to firms that are, you know, the Fortune 2000 firms. Uh, to them, uh, a lot of firms look at background checks as a commodity. It's just who, who can give it to us cheapest. And so the competitive pressure has caused some very large firms uh, to go to India and the Philippines where you can get labor at $4 an hour. 
people who graduated with college degrees, you know, in that, in that range, you know, four or five, six dollars an hour. And so they, they are what they call BPOs, business process outsourcing centers in, in the Philippines and in India. I've, I've seen some of them, uh, huge data factories, um, and, uh, where the background checks are really being done by Philippine firms or Indian firms, and the U.S. firm is just really, you know, do customer service or, or sales. Um, so there's a lot of data moving offshore. Now, for some firms, they don't care. If you're a Fortune 500 firm and you do stuff offshore, maybe you don't care. But uh, for some employers, they, they want to know about this, and they want to make sure that, uh, that they're comfortable with it, that, that the information is protected, because once data, you know, you know, once personal identifiable information, PII, leaves the United States, it's beyond U.S. privacy laws. Uh, and that's not to say that there couldn't be a data breach in the U.S. or a call center in the U.S. where you have a uh, data theft, but at least in the U.S. there's resources and recourses. If it goes offshore, well, you know, a firm may want to question, uh, is the security good? What's, uh, how, you know, what's happening with our applicants' data? And now California was the first uh, state in the nation to pass a offshoring law. As far as I know, it's the first law of any kind that regulates offshoring. Uh-huh. And it's a law that basically says that if you're doing a background check, you've you got to let the applicant know your, about your privacy policy, and then the background firm, in turn, has to... Uh, comply with with a number of requirements that basically helps an applicant uh, obtain information as to whether or not the firm is offshoring their data. So it's a sunshine law. It just sheds light on it. It's not illegal. It's perfectly legal. It's not regulated. But employers uh, ought to be aware that... uh, that this is a process that's happening, and if this, if they're concerned about it, it's a good time to ask questions. Uh, there's an organization called Concerned CRAs, about 200 members, uh, and Concerned CRAs uh, has taken a twofold pledge. Number one, they will not offshore uh, data uh, or use offshore resources. Obviously, if you're doing an international background check, it's different. But and number two, they will not use databases as a primary source. So that it's an interesting organization called Concerned CRAs that has established those two best practice standards. Well, and the things that just to put it in layman's language for employers who are listening, we're talking about personal identifying information is name, address, social security number, date of birth. Exactly. Everything you need to, uh, uh, to do, <laughs> yeah, do identity theft, create a new identity, and, and, and wreak havoc on someone's life. <laughs> right? Exactly. So uh, people that are, are sending or companies that are sending their backgrounds offshore, uh, that's, a, that's a scary proposition. And, uh, you know, we talk about identity theft all the time. That's a daily conversation on the news. So we should be careful about that. You know, uh, Les, we're almost to the end of our hour here. Um, what what um, advice would you give to employers uh, who are doing their own screening? Well, you can certainly do background checks in-house. You can do anything in-house. You can do your own cleaning. You can wash your own windows. You can clean your own carpets. You could do, I mean, there's all sorts of things you do in-house. Um, but, but the question for employers is it's a classic uh, question of, of why do you outsource? Well, typically a smart organization outsources those things that, although they may be vital, uh, are, are not essential to your core business. You spend time doing what you do, and then you hire experts. Lots of experts out there. You hire benefit consultants. You you hire software engineers. Whatever you need, and so you really need to to think. You know, if I'm am I really saving a buck or two versus just uh, sending it out to a, a knowledgeable PI or screening firm who can take care of it? 
There's also um, problematic if you do in-house screening. Uh, some uh, organizations may do in-house screening through their investigative department, and, and there's a whole chapter in my book about how there are a number of traps for the unwary because you might think you're doing in-house screening. You may think the Fair Credit Reporting Act does not apply, but you can very easily trip the FCRA wire and suddenly find that everything you're doing is illegal. So best advice is to uh, really consult with a knowledgeable attorney or knowledgeable screening firm if you're going to do this in-house. Uh, through your own resources to make sure you're doing it legally and properly because there are so many ways to get into trouble. And, and basically the walkaway point with the whole idea of background screening is you got to do it. If you don't do background screening, you know, the odds are you're going to hire someone with a, a, a phony resume, uh, with phony credentials, with a, with a, a criminal record that is uh, uh, serious and job-related. Um, you're going to get in trouble if you, if you just hire blind. If you, just, if you say, hey, I'll hire anyone, and you don't protect yourself. On the other hand, you're going to equally get in trouble if you don't screen properly. So the trick is you got to screen, you got to do it, you got to dot your I's and cross your T's and do it exactly right. And and that's the what you have to navigate in order to get the best, highest quality people so you can spend your time uh, doing whatever your business does and not be worried about uh, having uh, bad people or, or fighting lawsuits and not be distracted or deterred from, from doing what it is that, that your business does. Exactly right. Well, that's great advice, and we are at the end of our hour. Thank you, Les. You are just always, as always, a wealth of information. I love talking to you. Uh, so if you're interested in advertising on PIs Declassified, you can contact Sandra Rogers at sandra.rogers at voiceamerica.com and tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. And Les is an investigator, too, don't forget. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, Les. Thank you, Francie. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.